these women are much less likely to seek help. I constantly hear women saying, I can't outsource that. I can't ask for help. Or I hear other women shaming them when they do, which is awful. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka. Welcome to episode number 230 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. And that, my friend, includes you. If you've been listening for a while, I bet you're starting to see your strengths and, dare I say, brilliance. So, can you imagine what working with me would be like? Look, we love the sparkly and new, so sometimes it can feel like we're all over the place. ADHD women often tell me, I am interested in so much. Which of my many interests is the one I should pursue? Well... We have interest-driven brains, right? And hyper-focus. So if we can learn more about who we really are and what's truly important to us, we'll know exactly what we should be hyper-focusing on. And then the sky's the limit. That's exactly what we do in my six-week program, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. -okay. It includes live coaching with me and a private community of women just like you. And we have two cohorts that are still open for this year. If you go to the website right now, you'll see the price is $11.94. But I don't want you to buy it at that price. If you're thinking about it at all, please take advantage of this promotion and get $500 off. But don't wait because things are filling up. You can find out more at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash AOK. And use the code PODCASTSASS. That's S-A-S-S -S -S, to get $500 off the program just for being a podcast listener. I would love to have you join us. So now let's get on to our podcast, which is all about why ADHD is a feminist issue. 
And I am really excited to bring you this topic. It has been a while since I've recorded a solo episode. And um, I think it was all the book research that just about killed me, right? So I want to tell you how this episode came about. I've wanted to write about this for forever. And in fact, I did so for my book, but it was roundly chopped by my editors, all of them, by the way, because there was just too much else to write about. So I talked a little bit about it, but not in the depth that I wanted to go in. And they're the book experts, right? I've never written a book before, but that didn't mean that I still can't talk about the subject and this chapter on this podcast where I get to make all of the decisions. What a relief that is. <laughs> so in the course of pulling this episode together for my initial manuscript, a brilliant young woman named Tiffany McIntosh from Australia contacted me. She wanted to work with me, and I just found something so appealing about her. So I said, okay. And I don't think she knows just yet how brilliant she is, but it is my mission to make sure that she ultimately does. Anyway, she helped me to take what I wrote and build a podcast episode uh, from it. And in the process, she shared her story with me. So I want to read for you Tiffany's story in her own words. As a child, I was continuously pulled in line for being too much. Over the years, teachers and grown-ups told me that I talked too loudly, laughed too much, and had too many questions. I watched with confusion as boys with similar behavior went unpunished. Sometimes they were even rewarded. I saw the subtle and sometimes not so subtle hints of rejection from other girls. I always felt like something was wrong with me, like I was failing in my role as a daughter, sister, girl, and woman. Ambitious and curious, I wanted to learn, have a career, and make a difference in the world. I didn't want to sit down and be quiet. I tried to make my voice heard, but it didn't seem that this was what society wanted for me. I watched how women behaved in real life and on television. It was clear that women were responsible for domestic affairs. This responsibility appeared to grow with marriage and reach what I perceived to be an impossible high in motherhood. From an early age, I was terrified of the prospect, and I watched my mother anxiously filled with vicarious overwhelm. Why did these normal tasks inspire so much apprehension? What was wrong with me? This is a puzzle I've been trying to solve my whole life. Was I born the wrong gender? I didn't feel like a boy, but I also didn't feel like I was what society wanted me to be as a woman. Was I lazy or weak? Why did the fear of managing a household occupy much of my thought space and leave me with dread? How could I ever be a wife, let alone a mother? I desperately wanted a partner. I loved children, but could barely cook for myself. So either was clearly out of the picture. These internalized feelings of shame and inadequacy have led to a lifetime of hiding from the world, an ongoing battle with mental health, and a litany of mystery health conditions. An ADHD diagnosis has helped me come to terms with the way my brain works, but it's a diagnosis that came later in life and was missed by many. Even with a diagnosis, it's hard to escape the social pressure to live up to a feminine ideal that simply doesn't compute with my neurodivergent ways. I'd love nothing more than to have children and a partner, but I still feel like I'm not good enough to be a suitable partner and that I'll never be able to handle motherhood. 
Tiffany's experience, it's not unique. And thanks to the internet, women with ADHD are suddenly able to connect and share their inner battles. Sharing our experiences helps reduce the shame. But what is the root cause of that shame? After all, our experiences, women with ADHD, differ significantly from those of men. And this is where I think feminism comes in. I know that the F word is not something we willingly throw around these days. Being a feminist comes with all kinds of political baggage that leaves many of us running away from this label. But feminism, it's not some radical idea belonging to a far-out leftist political point of view. Quite simply, a feminist includes anyone who supports equal rights for women. If you believe that you, your daughters, or your wife or partner should have equal rights to a man, then congratulations, you're a feminist. When it comes to ADHD, we know that women are much less likely to be diagnosed early and treated for their ADHD. The research shows they experience a higher toll than men with a greater likelihood of suffering from comorbidities and reduced life outcomes. We know that almost one in four women with ADHD will attempt suicide, so this is important. Despite this, the study and treatment of ADHD largely ignores women's differences. ADHD in women and girls continues to be diagnosed and treated using the same criteria and treatments designed to treat men and boys. Yes, it's better, but we've still got a long, long way to go. Women with ADHD, well, we deserve better. We're not small men. We have different physiology, and we face different gendered expectations and biases. We know that often symptoms of ADHD show up much differently in women and often vary across stages of life due to the impact of hormones. Different gender expectations and biases add to our challenges and can lead to masking, poor self-image, and shame. Masking, by the way, is when you hide your symptoms or difficulties from others. You just don't tell anyone, right? Because you're ashamed. And... As you can expect, these negative emotions significantly increase our risk of comorbidities like anxiety and depression and make it less likely that we'll get the right kind of support. Now, ADHD is considered a mental illness because it can affect a person's behavior, mood, or thinking. But what really constitutes mental illness and who says what mental illness is or isn't? I just always go back to, what about those 43% of adults from that big Canadian study last year that indicated that 43% of all adults with ADHD are in excellent mental health? So the DSM, or Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that's what tells you what mental illness is or isn't. It was first published in 1952 as the Handbook that was used by clinicians and psychiatrists to diagnose mental illness in the United States. The latest edition, the DSM-5, was published in 2013, and that's the one that is currently being used to diagnose mental illness. I personally think that we need to start, and this is controversial, by asking if the DSM is a scientific document of actual mental illnesses or is it more a reflection of what's actually going on in society at any given time? After all, homosexuality was depathologized and removed from the DSM as a mental illness only in 1973. An internet gaming disorder? Well, that was added in 2013. And I've often wondered 
Why does hoarding disorder apply when you stockpile old magazines and cardboard and Band-Aids? But when you stockpile billions, one company at a time? It doesn't. Doesn't it really come down to what is socially acceptable at any point in time? You know, there was a time when Southern doctors used pseudoscience to explain a disease of the mind that they termed drapetomania. This was a disease attributed to slaves who tried to escape captivity. There was another alleged disease called dysesthesia, Ethiopica, I hope I didn't massacre that, which pathologized the same slaves' lack of work ethic as evidenced by symptoms such as, get this, such as disobedience, insolence, and refusing to work. It sounds so ridiculously obvious today why any human being would prefer freedom over captivity. But this isn't the first time that racism has been accepted as scientific fact. And we also had those unruly, irreligious women labeled as witches and burned at the stake. Then we had the mental illness labeled female hysteria in the 18th and 19th century. You know, when our daughters could be sold for cash and prizes. Of course, this illness was reserved for the fairer sex, who dared complain about anything. The primary symptom of female hysteria? <laughs> you got it, yeah. It was emotional instability. There was never any consideration paid to the fact that perhaps the reason these women were depressed or anxious or suffering mental breakdowns was because these were normal responses to the daily trauma and oppression of living in a society where you're forbidden to be who you really are, so you can't live to your potential, and you just don't fit in. And these, quote-unquote, and I'm using air quotes right now, mental illnesses were served up by men in white coats who were put in place to control intelligent women who challenged the status quo and questioned societal norms. Sounds like us, huh? And you'll never guess the common cure for female psychiatric patients. Yep, lobotomies, institutionalization, tranquilizers, take your pick. My own great aunt was sterilized and committed in Germany by Hitler when she broke down, a normal response to emotional pain, after she saw what was actually going on in Germany and her fiancé was killed. This was after her own mother had died just a few years earlier when she was a teenager. My mother tells a story of her mother going to visit her sister after she was sterilized and institutionalized. She was in her early 20s, but her hair had gone completely gray. Her family never saw her again. You know, it reminds me that I was just in Berlin, and uh, we stayed at a former women's prison that housed Nazi dissidents during the war. Female Nazi dissidents. And two architects who must have been ADHD, because I think only someone with that kind of imagination could have reimagined and redesigned this former prison into one of the most beautiful, peaceful spaces. Now, it still has the solid metal prison doors, but what they did is they cut the bars on the windows, so the bars are just at the top, and then they extended the windows downward to let in tons of light. And then they painted everything this beautiful soft white, 
and out of these ethereal globe-like lights that kind of hang down like little moons. And then they built a beautiful nature-filled courtyard in the center of all of this. And I know it sounds kind of creepy. And in the middle of the night, it kind of was, you know, when I was lying there and I could see the outline of how many cells made up one room. But it was such a feat paying homage to what was, the atrocities of what happened there, what happened in Berlin, what happened in Germany and in Poland, and not letting people forget, which they could have done, right? They could have just raised the whole thing and built something brand new, but they didn't. So they took that violent history and somehow they built this serene, calm, beautiful, dare I say it, it was almost a spiritual space. If you're going to Berlin, I highly recommend it. I have never stayed at a hotel where I was this interested in knowing more, you know, that ADHD thing that we do. My family thought I was nuts in the middle of the night. I was just up Googling. By the way, the hotel name is the Wilhelmina, and it's in the Charlottenburg neighborhood in Berlin. So I have to go back because they kept one cell intact. And as they found things during their excavation, they added those things to that cell. And they're in the process of creating a little museum there. And they also told me that they're talking to some of the women who spent time in that prison after the war, because afterwards it was a, a prison for juveniles. And so they're putting together a documentary. So again, I got to go back. I need to see that little cell that they've converted into this museum. And because the hotel had just opened up, none of this was ready. Anyway, I'm doing what our ADHD brains do so beautifully. I have totally digressed. But I guess my point is that in the middle of a lot of pain and horror can grow beauty, resilience, deep understanding, and a drive to make things better, right? And women are constantly pathologized for having too much emotion. Today, we could say that, I don't know, I guess the modern-day lobotomy could be in the form of antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. And I understand how life-changing medication can be for some, but why are women much more likely to be on antidepressants than men? And why are women being prescribed antidepressants when they're not, in fact, depressed? So the question I always have is, does the DSM, in effect, pathologize normal responses to trauma? And so when I was writing this chapter for the book, I remember reading that women are much more likely than men to be diagnosed with personality disorders, whereas men are more likely to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. It's interesting, isn't it? Women aren't allowed to have outsized emotions. If they do, it's a character flaw or a moral failing. But men, society is much more likely to ask, hey, what happened to you, right? So a feminist perspective allows us to see how gender factors into the experiences of those of us with ADHD, from diagnoses and treatment to ongoing impact. And when we factor in the experiences of women with multiple minoritized identities, for example, women of color, the story gets even more complex. When we distill it down, however, there are three critical ways that gender impacts our experience with ADHD. And before I go into them, there are two great books that I'd like to recommend that really go into depth on this subject. The first is by Janara Nuremberg called Divergent Mind, Thriving in a World that Wasn't Designed for You, and Saving Normal, an Insider's Revolt Against Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnoses, DSM-5, 
Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Ordinary Life. And it's by Dr. Alan Francis, who was the chair of the DSM-4 task force. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant read. So what are the three critical ways that gender impacts our experience with ADHD? Well, first, medical misogyny, right? A feminist perspective draws attention to the long history of medical misogyny that's neglected or pathologized the experiences and needs of women. So medicine, of course, is a field designed by men, for men typically, right? And when it comes to research, men have always been the assumed baseline for what is normal. So male bodies are always the default. Women are excluded from medical trials. This was happening at least for three decades, partly because of thalidomide. Thalidomide was used in clinical trials in the 50s and 60s. It caused a lot of birth defects, but also because women's bodies, like they were seen as too complex, right? And too expensive to include in studies. And I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but hormones constantly change during our cycles, right? Which makes research more difficult and expensive. So instead, medical trials have just ignored us and only included males. So in 1993, the U.S. passed the National Institute of Health, NIH Revitalization Act, which made it illegal not to include women in federally funded clinical trials. Since then, though, little has changed. In 2016, the NIH added a requirement that funded grants had to include women unless there was a compelling reason why only one sex should be examined. Still, when women are actually included in studies, They are studied when hormone levels are at their lowest, rather than in different stages um, during their cycle, which makes a difference in the results. I mean, it's shown that hormone changes the effectiveness of some antidepressants, antipsychotics, antihistamines, and antibiotics, as well as heart medications. We also believe that hormones change the effectiveness of ADHD medication. Not being included in medical trials, well, that's led to a gender data gap, which results in women being dismissed or not believed when we actually have a medical problem. The truth is, we don't know how women respond to most medications because, frankly, it just hasn't been studied. Something as simple as what temperature an office should be set at was based on research conducted in the 1960s exclusively on, you guessed it, men. Well, it turns out that women have a lower metabolic resting rate than men. So these temperatures were set up to five degrees too cold for the average female metabolic rate. It's no wonder why walking into an office building in the middle of the summer feels like walking into a meat locker. It reminds me of when I was a child. You know, my mother would always complain about the house being too cold. My father didn't want the temperature set higher than 68. And as a teenager, I didn't get it. We weren't faking being cold. We felt cold. So I would jack up the thermometer to 72 every time I walked by it since, like my mom, I was always cold. That is, until my dad put a nail in the thermometer lever so you could never push it past 68. Look, there was no research on women showing that their bodies actually needed higher room temperatures to be comfortable. My dad didn't know that temperatures influence productivity, concentration, and accuracy. He also didn't know that cold indoor temperatures are associated with increased blood pressure, asthma symptoms, and poor mental health. He just believed that his experience was everyone's experience, including my mom's, like we so often do, right? 
I haven't let him forget about this since, but it's like ADHD or a learning disorder, right? If everything just works for you just fine, you believe that the people pointing out the problems, it's not working for me. Hey, raising their hand, right? They're just difficult and they're just complaining because it works for you. Many clinical pain conditions are also much more common in women than men. Large studies seem to indicate that women feel pain more intensely than men, yet men who are in pain are prescribed pain medication, while women are more likely to receive sedatives or antidepressants. Since we know that dopamine is involved in processing pain, for ADHD women, this just adds insult to injury. Even when we're in pain, we're not believed. And it's not just additional pain that medicine inflicts on women. We're also killing them. A study published in the New England Journal of Medicine found that women are seven times more likely than men to be misdiagnosed and discharged in the middle of having a heart attack. Why? Because women, just like in ADHD, have altogether different symptoms than men do when having a heart attack. Yet since the studies have all been conducted on men and carried out by men, few know this. Dr. Kimberly Yonkers, she's a professor of psychiatry, obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at Yale University. She is one of a handful of researchers who studies premenstrual syndrome, PMS, right? Many medical practitioners, they still don't believe PMS is a thing, despite the fact that more than 200 different symptoms have been identified for the condition. But get this, for every piece of research into PMS, Yep, there are five studies into erectile dysfunction, ED, right? And this is despite the fact that 90% of women experience at least one symptom of PMS monthly, while just 19% of men are affected by ED. Recently, I've seen a lot of conversations around PMDD, which stands for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. It's a very severe form of PMS. Now, up to 92% of women with autism and 46% of women with ADHD are believed to experience PMDD, yet so little is known about it. Look, until we start speaking up and refusing to take a no from our medical providers, we're not going to have answers. By the way, we are working on a PMDD episode right now. So why is it more known about conditions like PMS and PMDD that debilitate millions of women around the world. For the same reason that, despite the fact that women take more pharmaceuticals than men in the United States, 55% to 37% for those aged 20 to 59, most of these drugs have never been tested on women. The male body has always been seen as the default human body. And because of this, women are dying. Those making the decisions, you know, what to research and when, they're usually men, right? Most government and corporate policies are set by men. In politics, men far outnumber women, and women are the ones who are more likely to support policies that support other women. And if you think research in women's health has been overlooked and underfunded for white women, BIPOC women continue to be even more underrepresented in research. Black women are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women. And this is in the United States. 
Regarding ADHD, there's been a complete absence of women. An ADHD diagnosis was historically reserved for young boys and men. So accordingly, the research has only recently and still rarely included women. And the diagnostic criteria and treatments, they're not designed for women. This is why so many women go years without a diagnosis, often collecting a slew of misdiagnoses along the way, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, etc. Or they have their symptoms dismissed entirely, which shatters their confidence not only in themselves, but also the medical profession. We don't even know the full range of symptoms for women. Instead, we're told that it's all in our head. It's psychosomatic and to go home because there's nothing actually wrong with us. And it's certainly not ADHD, right? The earlier the diagnoses and the more appropriate the treatment options, the better shot we have at reaching our full potential. A feminist perspective dismantles assumptions of gender neutrality, and it demonstrates the need for sex and gender differential diagnostic criteria and treatments that recognize the cyclical nature of women's hormones. So there's another great book if you're interested in this subject called Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And it's written by Caroline Criado Perez. It's one of the best books I've read because what I love about it is It's all data. It's all facts and figures. So there's nothing really to argue about. So we've covered medical misogyny as the first way that gender impacts our experiences with ADHD. The second way is, number two, gendered roles. Feminism, however, draws attention to gendered roles that add to the complexity of living with ADHD. You know, as women, we're expected to act and speak and dress in a certain way. And That's something that's difficult for a lot of women with ADHD. And I'll go a step farther and say, you know, my comment is screw the difficult. This is not difficult for me. I just out and out refuse to do it. I'm supposed to be soft-spoken and opinionless and certainly not hyperactive. I mean, society doesn't like that of their women, right? And I'm supposed to play nice by society's rules. When I don't, certain people just don't like me. Executive dysfunction, look, it's hard enough without the expectation that society also places on us women to be the manager of all things related to the home and to act as caregivers for all that live within that home. Women often tell me that, you know, look, I can barely, like Tiffany, right? I can barely cook for myself, let alone feed a family and remember who has what activity on what day and what time they need to pick up their, you know, their kid. The third way that gender impacts our experiences with ADHD is gendered biases. So, for example, the gender bias that when someone describes a doctor or an engineer, the assumption is that you're talking about a man, and when they hear teacher, that you're talking about a woman. Women are not just expected to do domestic and caregiving work. The attributes that make one successful at these roles are considered to be what defines femininity itself. Because of this, women with ADHD, we often suffer shame for not living up to social ideals when, in fact, the science tells us that before puberty, there is no difference between the male and female brain. So the different education that boys used to get and in some parts of the world still get is BS. So is, you know, the gendered toys and the gendered colors. In fact, according to Gina Rippon, she's a neuroscientist who wrote another excellent book, Gender and Our Brains, 
How New Neuroscience Explodes the Myths of the Male and Female Minds. According to Gina, there is no significant difference in brains based on sex alone. And as she says, to suggest otherwise is nothing more than neurofoolishness. I knew it since I was a freshman in college in that women's studies class. Here's another one. Women are no better at multitasking than men. In fact, no one is good at that. We are all more efficient when we can focus on one thing at a time. When we struggle with mundane household chores, we don't just fall behind on housework. We often feel like failures, right? Like we must be morally defective or lazy. For a man, poor domestic organization means an untidy house. But there isn't any social association of tidiness with success as a man. In fact, it's pretty much expected that men who are successful must not be good at the household chores and domestic stuff. So it's much easier for them to brush off or outsource the task, and they're not guilted for it. Often, you'll hear comments like, oh, you just need a wife, right? (laughs) The assumption being that, oh, yeah, the wife is going to be good at those things. On the other hand, women are socialized to believe they should be able to do these things, and therefore, they're more likely to perceive themselves as more impaired and suffer low self-esteem and shame. So it all makes sense. No wonder women struggle so much more with ADHD. They're expected to just naturally have been gifted with executive function skills like organization and planning when, in fact, they haven't been at all. And of course, we know that internalized feelings of guilt, well, it leads to masking, right? We talked about that. And so these women are much less likely to seek help. I constantly hear women saying, I can't outsource that. I can't ask for help. Or I hear other women shaming them when they do, which is awful. I've never heard a man expressing guilt over getting domestic help. I've heard men rail on women who do, but if they do it, it's almost like it's expected. This is the thing. I wish I could share with you the many emails I get daily from women who finally get help and how they say it changes their life. It just takes a little bit of additional structure, which, for example, a housekeeper or a babysitter can provide to literally change your life. Remember, the ADHD brain thrives with positive emotion. Think about it. If you're starting your day and you're walking to a kitchen that's clean and all the dishes are done and put away, what are you feeling? Positive emotion, right? Like you're in control. When you walk into a kitchen that is dishes piled in the sink, a floor that hasn't been mopped in weeks, stuff all over the counters, how do you feel? Likely out of control and full of negative emotion. So which way do you think is a better way to wake up and start your day. And I just want to make sure partners are listening because isn't what you want in the home ultimately a partner who's happy and engaged and feels peace and feels in control? You know, often I'll hear partners make comments like, well, she's staying home full time. She should be able to get this done. First off, you have no idea how much work it is to be the full-time stay-at-home parent. And honestly, isn't it better to have a parent who's engaging with the kids rather than someone who's focused on how clean everything is? And let's say your partner is really struggling and she can't do anything. I don't know, postpartum depression, or she's just paralyzed because 
She's beating herself up and you're beating her up too. So do you think your disdain over how she's managing the primary parenting role is making things better? What you're doing, it's not working. You know, it's like kids who don't do well in school. You've heard me talk about Dr. Ross Green and his phrase that kids do well if they can. The primary stay-at-home parent does well if they can. No one wants to struggle. Heaven knows, the U.S. especially sells us an incredible bill of goods about how magical parenting is. Yeah, if you have help and you feel like you're in control of it. For me, I almost feel guilty to admit that parenthood was magical. Well, not breastfeeding. That was hell. But the only reason it was magical for me was because I had a lot of help, not only from my husband, but also other help. All moms need help, but as ADHD moms, I think we need a lot more. And parenting, it wasn't the only thing I had time for, right? Because I had help, I was able to do some things just for me that I really wanted to do that provided meaning, and that kept my positive emotion high. And I'm confident and I'm certain that it also made me a much better parent. If you don't believe me, try to get just a little bit of help. For example, someone to help with your house every other week. When you wake up the day before that person, actually, you know what? When you decide to get the help, I want you to give yourself a SED score. So a SED score is a score that you rank yourself. So zero, you feel completely calm, in control, happy. And 10 is you're more anxious than you can stand, right? So when you finally decide, okay, right before you decide that you're going to go get some help, give yourself a SUD score. How do you feel between zero and 10? Are you completely calm, a zero, or are you more anxious than you can stand? Okay. And then once you find someone to help you, I want you to take another SUD score. Okay. And then after the person who comes to help you leaves, I want you to look around and I want you to take another SUD score. How do you feel? Ask yourself that. What I hear from women time and again is that a little bit of help is a game changer. Often, ADHD women will tell me that they'll figure out how to bring money in just to pay for that help because. After they do it the first time, they realize that the paid work that they will engage in is so much easier for them than staying on top of household chores. And the fact of the matter is there are people who are really good at the household chores. They love doing it and they're really good at it. So why not employ them? Anyway, I digressed yet again. So the consequences of struggling with organization and planning and then beating yourself up over it are huge. Women are not only less likely to be diagnosed and treated for ADHD, but we also suffer more from comorbidities like chronic illness, autoimmune conditions, inflammatory diseases, or comorbid mental health challenges. And if your cortisol levels are constantly through the roof, your nervous system will play havoc with your entire body. So this all makes sense. And it's not just about getting outside help. It's also about working together with your partner to get inside help, right? Eve Rodsky, another book, has written a fantastic book called Fair Play, a game-changing solution for when you have too much to do and more life to live. 
So she doesn't just write about how unfair the division of labor is between men and women in the House. She actually offers a solution, and she starts out by literally breaking down item by item everything that a couple, notice how I said couple, is responsible for. And then she offers a system that divides the labor according to each partner's strengths and weaknesses. She also has a card deck that lists all these chores that you can go through with your partner if, you know, you don't like the book idea. So anyway, Eve was a lawyer in New York City who advised basically rich people on how to give away their money to nonprofits. And she was managing all kinds of people and running around New York. And, you know, she was a big deal. But then she had two kids and became what she calls the she-fault parent. She was working too, but all household domestic responsibilities somehow fell on her. The school would call, her kid was sick, she'd stop her work and go get the child. She'd, you know, buy all the birthday presents, she'd do the birthday parties, she'd schedule the playgroup, she'd show up for the playgroup, she'd do all the shopping and the social engagements and the administrative, you know, school paperwork, she did all of it. It was just assumed that she would take care of it because she was the woman or the mom. So one day, her husband sent her a text. She had gone shopping, and her husband sent her a text, and it said, I'm surprised you didn't get the blueberries. And she was done. That was the final straw. She was like, how about if you get the damn blueberries? I don't know that she actually said that, but this book is funny, and it's a great tool for families where the division of labor is anything but fair. I highly recommend it. So Women, you know, women with ADHD, we have so many gifts to offer. And the problem is we cannot recognize and celebrate those gifts without a more level playing field. A feminist perspective helps us to see why women with ADHD struggle more and what we can do about it. Feminism allows us to question gendered expectations, to see them as social constructions that they don't really bear any basis in reality. And we can stop conflating them with virtue, right? Like this is how a good wife or mother should behave. And we can start embracing our uniqueness. The fact that many of us don't fit inside the socially constructed ideal of what women should be has nothing to do with our worth. And there is nothing about our biological sex that makes us particularly suited to the roles that society tells us that we should fill. Acknowledging this is crucial in enabling all women, neurodivergent or not, to recognize and celebrate our unique gifts, to break free of tasks that we're not good at and leave us depleted, and to start taking on roles that generate positive emotions and self-worth. Women of all varieties, including those of us with ADHD, we have so much untapped potential, and feminism can help us unlock that. There's one more thing that has really helped me, and That is also questioning what is, questioning conventional thought, questioning what we know. So one of my favorite books, The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius, is written by Dr. Gail Saltz. She's a psychiatrist, an American psychiatrist. And in this book, Dr. Saltz tells the story of Ellen Sachs. Ellen graduated first in her class from Vanderbilt University and went on to study philosophy at Oxford, where she was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Today, Sachs is a professor at the University of Southern California, Gould School of Law, and she's happily married. Now, before reading the story, I believed that a diagnosis of schizophrenia meant that you could no longer be a productive member of society. I mean, I remember reading that schizophrenia was much more prevalent in homeless people, so I incorrectly assumed that if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia, it must always mean that it's the end of the line for you. Now, there's no question that Sachs has struggled with her schizophrenia. 
but she's also contributed more to society than most of us. Her area of brilliance is around mental health and the law. She's published five books and more than written more than 50 articles, and she founded the Sachs Institute for Mental Health, Law, Policy, and Ethics, which works to improve the treatment of people with mental illness. But for her own personal experience with schizophrenia, Ellen would have never been as passionate about or accomplished as much for mental health. I always talk about the fact that our best purposes give meaning to our past. When we've actually really struggled with something, we feel called, certainly those of us with ADHD do, right? We feel called to help people struggling with the same thing have an easier time of it. So mentioning the power of different, it's just an aside, but it comes back to questioning everything, right? Questioning conventional thought, questioning what we know, questioning what is, and asking why. Why is it this way? And how can we make it better? Bottom line, we need more research on women. We need more data. Before I go, don't forget to check out my live coaching program, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. Remember, it also includes a private community of women just like you. You can find out more information at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash A-OK. And if you sign up right now with the code podcast SASS, S-A-S-S, you'll get $500 off just for being a podcast listener. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.